Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. Before we get started, just want to remind you, if you are interested in getting into this game of cryptocurrency, of Bitcoin and blockchain, distributed ledgers, and you want to start investing, we've made it easy. Go to consensusnetwork.io and you can uh, check out the tutorials uh, that Phil created over there. And uh, one of the options there is also to uh, create a Coinbase account. And the Coinbase account, if you buy some Bitcoin, I think they're going to give you $10 of Bitcoin free. And they'll even give me $10 of Bitcoin free. So we both win with that one. Anyway, check that out for sure at consensusnetwork.io. I also uh, just want to point out uh, that uh, we also have a news segment. And uh, that's a little bit different from uh, the other podcasts that I do. But this is this. Uh, this podcast has two segments. So there's the um, there's the show where we typically have content and maybe we interview somebody like we will on this one. Uh, and then later in the week, we try to keep the, the news current. So you're going to have that uh, coming up as well. This week, uh, and this interview I did um, uh, a couple weeks ago with a guy by the name of Tone Vase. Uh, Tone is an ex-Wall Street guy. And you see a lot of these guys who, you know, came to Bitcoin after the fall of um, fallout of uh, 2008 financial meltdown. So Tone got really into, um, you know, he was disillusioned with Wall Street, uh, with the banks, became a libertarian, became sort of a Ron Paul guy. And that was a story that a lot of the Bitcoin purists had who got in relatively early. Uh, he is, as you will see, passionate about Bitcoin. Um but what you'll also see is he's not passionate for other projects. He's not really into any other cryptocurrencies. He is a purist. Uh, and as we continue to speak to more people on this podcast, you will notice um, that major difference. You know, it's not a world. This is not a homogenous world. Uh, believers in cryptocurrency are not um, not all of the same beliefs at all. Uh, well, Tone is a Bitcoin purist. Uh, in a few weeks, for example, we're going to talk to a, a professor who studies economics in general and who's very bullish on distributed ledger technology. And he's really interested in um, just about everything except for Bitcoin. So we'll we'll talk to him as well. Now, this was a great conversation with Tone Vase. And when we come back, make sure to listen to this conversation with Tone Vase. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions, too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Tone Vase. Tone is more than a decade of experience in Wall Street. Uh, starting as a risk analyst at Bear Stearns, Tone later became a VP at J.P. Morgan Chase in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. Its expertise is in economic trends, uh, trading, and risk analysis. 
and he first became involved with uh, with Bitcoin in 2013 and has been active in spreading the relevance and importance of this technology since then. Uh, he's been featured in several documentaries, including Magic Money uh, and uh, Bitcoin Beyond the Bubble. Tone, welcome to the show. All right, thank you for having me on. Looking forward to this. Yeah, man. So you started um, out, it sounds like, you know, as a, as a typical finance guy back in 2007, um, you were you joined up Bear Stearns. Perfect timing, by the way. To us. <laughs> so tell me how you oh, got yeah. there and uh, what was it like to be in the front row as you saw Wall Street melt down? It was interesting. I mean, I was new to it, right? I was still learning the ropes. I was still trying to figure out what I was doing. And I guess we locked out because it wasn't like straight Bear Stearns. It was a subsidiary mostly owned by Bear Stearns. And what we were doing was we were doing third-party uh, independent risk of hedge funds. So while Bear Stearns is collapsing, our unit is very, very profitable because all of these hedge funds are trying to figure out how risky are all of these positions. Right. And uh, we, were, we did really well in 2008 during the crisis. Even during the collapse, I mean, there was like a couple of days where we're like, um, should we be working? Are we going to get paid? So yeah. there was a couple of those days, but JP Morgan took over our unit. I did not even change desks. Like we just <laughs> stayed where we were. We weren't actually in a different building. We had our own office. Uh, we had like our own independent unit. And 2008 was a great profit year for our unit. 2009, however, wasn't very good because a lot of the uh, hedge funds we were processing risk for went under. So yeah. then um, yeah. like, like we lost a lot of clients because they, uh, like, you know, they disappeared. So, uh, but 2008 itself was actually good for us because we were building risk models. Yeah, yeah, and I guess at that point, <laughs> risk models were probably in vogue. Um, so let's, let's fast forward a little bit. So you were, uh, I guess, as we said, we were, you're what Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin class of 2013. That's uh, that's that's going back early. That's, uh, you know, the real deal. So tell me, um, you know, how did you get interested in Bitcoin? Uh, you know, you know, how did, did this come as a result of a little bit of, of what what you saw on Wall Street? How did that come to be? Yeah, so uh, 2013 is a very interesting year because 2013, you know, if you got in in January, you got in at $10. If you got in in November, you got in at $1,200, right? So that's a huge variance. Yeah. That, that, that's even more than what happened in 2017, uh, going from about 1000 to 20000 This was from $10 to over $1,000. Uh, so my entry was around like late March, uh, early April, and it wasn't something I saw on Wall Street. It was something that I saw in Cyprus when uh, the Cyprus banks basically got shut down and half of the money above 100,000 euros was just confiscated by the government. And uh, the prior year, uh, you're based in the U.S. as well. So the prior year was the 2012 presidential election. And I became a big Ron Paul fan. So leading into that 2012 election, I started paying a lot more attention to, you know, hard money and the libertarian philosophy and, you know, 
be slowly becoming a gold bug, which I thank God I, I that didn't last very long because I don't yeah. see gold as a very good investment. Uh, we can maybe talk about yeah. that if you like. Yeah. But um, so I was moving into that zone and I started watching a lot of alternative news like some Al Jazeera and RT, um, like non-mainstream news TV. And I heard about Bitcoin in 2011 on RT in relation to the WikiLeaks incident when WikiLeaks got cut off from being financed by credit cards and PayPal and bank transfers. And WikiLeaks almost shut down, but then they started taking Bitcoin for donations. And that piqued my interest even back in 2011. But it wasn't until the Cyprus events in 2013 where I said, oh my God, you know, what if the US government wants to confiscate our money in the bank? What do you do? Because again, Go reading about the gold bugs. They took away the gold in 1934. Uh, now we're almost 100 years later. They can just confiscate your money, the civil asset forfeiture, or um, they freeze your bank account so you can't even hire a lawyer. Like, how does a person protect themselves? And keeping a bunch of cash in the house is not a smart idea. Same thing with gold bars. And Bitcoin gives you that out. It gives you something of value you can hold that can be confiscated. And uh, my view of Bitcoin got absolutely solidified in 2015 with the Greek banking shutdown. And people had to wait in line at ATM machines, withdrawing their 60 euro per day allowance. And then the banks open three weeks later and they have an allowance of withdrawing 400 something euros of their own money on a weekly basis. And I thought that was just ridiculous. So, and Bitcoin allows you to exit that system and be in full control of your own value. Of course, it comes with risks. If you forget your private key, also known as a password, uh, no one can help you. There's no customer service. You are fully responsible. And you, if you lose your access to your Bitcoin, it's lost. Right. And you know what I think is interesting is... is what you're getting at is what intrigues me so much about, uh, you know, Bitcoin and, and frankly, you know, this just this whole movement of peer peer to peer transactions in general is that it's very much a confluence uh, between these uh, between libertarians and computer scientists. And uh, that makes it a very powerful thing. But, you know, you 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 touched on something which I think is worth sort of diving into, which is Ron Paul. Uh, libertarian views on um, uh, gold-backed money, for example. Why is uh, why is Bitcoin perhaps a better storage of value than than gold? Sure, uh, that's a very good question. So uh, there is a very good book I always try to recommend to people. It was recently written. Uh, it's called The Bitcoin Standard by a PhD economist named Seyfedina Moose. And uh, he talked about hard money and he talked about the importance of hard money. Now, I've always been back and forth, you know, what's a better uh, financial system? Is it hard money like gold or is it a fractional reserve system like we have today? Uh, there are decent arguments on both sides. Uh, it's hard for me to, uh, as, as much as I don't like the fact that my fiat currency gets deflated away, uh, the U.S. has been fairly responsible with theirs. That's why it's the world reserve currency. Of course, most countries aren't. Uh, but uh, I, 
you know, I go back and forth. Like, would we have the internet today if we never got off the gold standard? And the answer is, we don't know. So you don't know what, what, where will we be today? Is it, will we have better technology today? Or would we not have as much technology today because we wouldn't be able to finance some of these operations without fractional reserve? So that's a debate going back and forth. Now, when Satoshi launched Bitcoin, um, I always say Bitcoin competes with fiat currencies in three ways. It's unconfiscatable, as I already mentioned. It's censorship-resistant value transfer. Uh, so you can send it to anyone, you know, without permission. It's not, you know, it's not as fast as it can be. It's, it's going to get better. It's not as cheap as it can be. It's going to get better. It's not as private as it can be. It's going to get better. These are all technological things that are in the works. And within a few years, they're going to be much better. But Satoshi didn't have to launch Bitcoin as a gold-type hard money. But he did. He could have chose any monetary policy he wanted. He could have chosen 2% yearly inflation. He could have chosen uh, decelerating inflation. Let's say 50 Bitcoins every 10 minutes for the rest of time. So it's infinitely inflationary in terms of Bitcoin, but at a decelerating rate. But he chose uh, an ex, um, half-life model where we know there will only be 21 million Bitcoin. Was that a smart move? Um, it, we don't know, okay? Uh, the Austrian economists will say that it is. And it's actually harder money than gold because within three or four years, the new supply of Bitcoin is, will be smaller by percentage to the outstanding supply of Bitcoin uh, what Seyfedin refers as the, as the stock-to-flow ratio, uh, the amount of uh, currency in circulation to the amount of new currency that's being added. And Bitcoin is going to be even harder properties than gold. It's going to be inflating at a smaller rate. So that should have more demand for Bitcoin. Now, the way Bitcoin actually competes with gold is that gold isn't very good in a digital age. So with the invention of metal detectors and technology, your gold is now a lot easier to confiscate because metal detectors are preventing you from using gold, you know, for cross-border value transfer. Even if you bury it in the ground, I'm sure it's not going to be hard for, you know, the government to fly a helicopter all around and like ping the ground to try and look for, you know, gold that's buried. I mean, how deep are you actually going to bury it? So gold has become confiscatable a lot easier than Bitcoin because I can store Bitcoin in my head and no one even knows I have them. Also, um, you can't use bit, uh, gold for peer-to-peer -peer value transfer because someone, there has to be a middleman transferring that gold, which is why all of these crypto initiatives that use gold as a, um, as a reserve, it's like, well, this crypto is backed by gold. Well, that makes no sense. E-gold tried to do this, you know, 20 years ago and 10 years ago, they got in serious trouble and went to jail and the gold was confiscated. So uh, it's hard to use gold as a peer-to-peer -peer value transfer because, again, it's confiscatable and it needs a middleman. Mm. Uh, but the financial properties of gold and Bitcoin, they're about the same, uh, but Bitcoin competes. And again, it's a digital age. Um, another very interesting thing from that book, because I don't want to take credit for it, is an explanation as to why silver continues to debase against gold. And 
uh, a lot of the silver proponents talk about how silver has been more common money than gold for the last 3,000 years, going back to the days of the Romans. And the reason for that is because gold wasn't very divisible. You know, it's hard to subdivide gold lower than a gram, but a gram of gold still buys you quite a bit, especially, you know, hundreds of years ago. So they needed a micropayment. They needed a smaller unit than a gram of gold. And that's why silver was so popular for the common people. Um, with the advancement of technology going into the 20th century, you were able to put gold in a bank account and now you've created paper money backed by gold and you no longer need silver to subdivide gold. You can subdivide gold with paper money. Of course, they broke the, uh, you know, the backing of that paper money to gold. But from a technological perspective, uh, silver should continue to lose its monetary elements because in the current age of technology, it's just not needed to subdivide gold. And Bitcoin is even more subdivisible than gold because with Bitcoin, you can subdivide that up to one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin uh, into a unit called a Satoshi. And right now, a Satoshi is a tiny fraction of a penny. And while at the moment, it's not you know, cost effective to send Satoshis peer to peer, but once Lightning Network, which is a second layer yeah. scaling solution, uh, comes about, uh, it's already being beta tested where you pay for things in Satoshis, which are like a penny divided by, you know, hundreds or if not thousands of units. So uh, Bitcoin is very subdivisible, which is what gives it an, an additional advantage uh, over gold because gold needs to be paper subdivided and the government's in control. So let me let me just play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, although I, you know, mostly agree with you in the fact that, um, you know, I think I think Bitcoin, you know, coming from uh, the real asset world um, is um, a lot more similar to gold than it is to fiat currency, obviously, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, uh, it's there's, there's a finite amount, et cetera, um, you know, and all those qualities that make it, you know, not fiat currency. I mean, that's obviously what Bitcoin is, is not fiat currency. Um, but you talked a little bit about the the ability for the government to confiscate gold. Of course, they did that, as you mentioned, under the um, uh, in 1934, and um, they made it illegal to own gold. Is there any reason why it couldn't suddenly become illegal if a government chose uh, to to hold Bitcoin? Um, no, that is that has been one of my concerns since the day I came into this space. And to this day, some people think I'm crazy, but to this day, I am still a little paranoid of exactly that. An announcement by the government that gold has been, sorry, that Bitcoin has been criminalized in a similar way that gold was. And, uh, and this is why I still do not buy nor sell Bitcoin. Uh, through the banking system, I still try not to use Bitcoin in connection with my, you know, name and address because I don't want the government to know that I even have Bitcoin and Bitcoin allows me to do that. Now, some people will say this is crazy. Why are you scared of the government? And uh, well, because I kind of enjoy <laughs> my life. And look, some people want to be, you know, some people are ready to 
you know, stand up and, you know, be examples. Like we look at Ross Sulbrick, who ran, uh, allegedly was the administrator of a website and is now doing two life sentences. And uh, the next guy in that chain, like a guy that almost as like basically did pretty much 90% of what Ross did, he, he only got like less than a year in prison, right? So it's like someone is going to be made an example of, and I really don't want that to be me. And I'm, maybe I'm being extra cautious about it, but that's just, you know, my risk averse uh, lifestyle. Yeah. But that is something that worries me. So here's the big difference, right? So with gold, uh, I think back then people were a little more trusty of the government, even though that's almost difficult to say. Uh, because it was closer to the U.S., like 100 years closer to the U.S. revolution where nobody trusted the government, which is why the U.S. had a revolution to begin with. So, but um, here's the big difference. When um, they announced gold is illegal and they confiscated the gold, the reason they were able to actually achieve that is because 80% or like 70, 80% of the gold was concentrated in the banking system. So they never actually went door to door they send out that announcement saying, hey, you know, if people are scared, they'll come in and give it to us. But, it, but they, they were never going to, you know, hunt people down for the gold. They just took it from the banks. So if Bitcoin gets very concentrated, and this is my fear, uh, if the government just announces Bitcoin is illegal, then sure, they still can't take away the Bitcoin. But if too many people don't hold Bitcoin themselves, if too many people are letting Bitcoin banks, as we like to call them, hold that Bitcoin for them, uh, there's all this talk about a Bitcoin ETF for people on, you know, that are traders to trade it. That ETF needs to be backed by Bitcoin. If that ETF has a lot of Bitcoin backing it, that's another pot of Bitcoin that the government can come in and seize. Now, it may be a little difficult for the U.S. government to show up at a crypto exchange or a crypto bank overseas and confiscate that uh, Bitcoin, that may be a little bit tricky, but any Bitcoin you know, uh, where the US has jurisdiction, uh, they can probably confiscate that and then confidence could kind of be lost or handed over to the government. If over 50% of all Bitcoin is being held by centralized institutions because people are too scared or too lazy to control their own private keys and be, and be their own banks, then sure, it could be a complete repeat of 1934 where the government only has to make five phone calls and all of a sudden they have 50% of the Bitcoin. Now, what can happen is people can lose faith in that Bitcoin and the value of that Bitcoin can crash um, or people will be okay. If, um, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say what the mentality of the people will be in 20 to 30 years. I'm not expecting that part anytime soon. Um, if something like that is to happen, it's not going to happen anytime soon. It'll happen later. Right now, it would kind of be almost like making marijuana illegal. Sure, they can arrest you, but it's still a, at the end of the day, it's still a plant. Yeah. They can't stop a plant from growing. Uh, they can arrest you for smoking the plant, but they can't. You know, the, 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 no government has the power to stop a plant from growing. So it's the same thing with Bitcoin. They may arrest you for using it, but they will not have the power to confiscate it. And that's a big thing. You know, it, it's funny when you talk when we're talking about these, you know, issues of the government and banning and all these things. Meanwhile, in reality, what we're seeing 
in uh, in in the uh, milieu of, of government and large institutions is a relative interest in Bitcoin. Obviously, you mentioned the ETFs. Um, we had the Winklevoss uh, ETFs get knocked down. We've got something coming up from the um, CBOE and and Vanek, which a lot of people think is uh, you know has got a good chance of getting through maybe in the next year. Does participation of large institution banks dilute the libertarian aspect of Bitcoin that you're talking about? I don't think so, um, uh, because I, I think it will bring a little more efficiency to the market. And um, a lot of people are complaining about these exchanges. Uh, they need to be more efficient. They need to have better technology. Uh, it would be nice for traditional exchanges that have experience in order matching and liquidity providing to give us a more stable market because we have 18 million Bitcoin in circulation. And I think maybe what, three to three million Bitcoin at best are responsible for all of the price discovery of that Bitcoin. And that needs to be as efficient as possible because that's a very small percentage of Bitcoin being traded that's responsible for you know the price of all of the Bitcoin being stored. Um, I, I think everything gets easier when one Bitcoin is worth a lot more money. Uh, when one Bitcoin is upwards of $100,000, then your day-to-day -day purchases are not really going to fluctuate in value all that much. Um, if the price of a Bitcoin, even on a daily basis, changes from $100,000 to $95,000, uh, you know, your dinner of $100 is not really going to be affected. It'll change by about $0.20. Cents. Uh, from the day before, right? It, it's it's a scale thing. So as there's more value on chain, uh, as one big each Bitcoin becomes more and more valuable, your day-to-day -day transactions become more and more stable, and uh, Bitcoin starts to become a little more of a stable currency for people to use. Maybe slowly becoming a unit of account for like the Big Mac or something like that. <laughs> and um, so I'm looking forward to that day. Um, if it's a if it's a legitimate product, it's it, it's gonna have to be you know in the financial realm. Um, everything else has uh, ETFs on it and futures contracts on it, and it has a financial market. Except diamonds, which is probably the most manipulated uh, commodity in the world. Uh, people always like to say how gold is manipulated, and I throw it back at them. No, it's not. Uh, because I can trade gold from my house. I can short, I can make it short gold. I can make it long gold. I can participate in price discovery of gold. I can't participate in the price discovery of diamonds. Give me a futures contract on that one. Uh, so we'll see. I think having uh, good uh, financial contracts by institutions that know what they're doing is a good thing, not a bad thing. But what does worry me is the honeypot of Bitcoin that may underlie those assets that could be confiscatable. So I, I can really debate both yeah. sides on this one. Yeah, although although presumably the 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 argument there, at least in my view, would be that once you've got, you know, there, there's a lot of talk within um, the Bitcoin community about this, as you know, whether you know ETFs are good or bad for for Bitcoin in, in general. The good thing, in my view, is that if you indeed get a true Bitcoin, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 something that's held uh, physically, if you as much physically as you can be, 
like the Van Eck uh, CBO, CBOE product, then uh, Bitcoin becomes a true, uh, you know, a, a, a true commodity. It's now recognized. It's very difficult to undo that. And from that end, it makes me feel like if if and when that happens, Bitcoin's around for 100 years. Um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And um, uh, even though, like, like I said, I don't like the fact that there will be Bitcoin being concentrated. Um, it's very difficult. Like what we talked about earlier, uh, can the government just come out and ban it? Well, a little hard to do when there's futures contracts, right? Um, a little hard to do when there's ETF contracts. A little hard to do when you know Goldman Sachs is involved in trading it. Exactly, uh, it becomes it becomes very difficult to do. The the U.S. government would have to go, it would have to be in the middle of some major catastrophic financial crisis in order to do it. Well, it can't just be a moral issue. It has to be like our country is going to collapse if we don't confiscate Bitcoin issue like it was in the 30s or in the 70s when Nixon couldn't keep paying out gold to the French. Right. Like it has to be uh, like we have to do it or the country will fall apart kind of scare tactic. Uh, and that a moral issue will never do that. Yeah. Um, you talked a little bit about Lightning Network. And for people who don't know about that, I think it's a useful topic because, you know, there's a lot of um, one of, one of the, the, the topics I think that, um, you see, even within the Bitcoin community at this point is, you know, what exactly is Bitcoin? Is it, a, is it a currency or is it a storage of value? Is it something that you move around hundreds of thousands of dollars around or is it something to buy a Big Mac? And first of all, what's your view on that? And if you could, you could, you know, kind of, you mentioned Lightning Network, talk a little bit about Lightning Network, what that is and, and potentially what, you know, the implications are. Sure. So ideally, in the near future, Bitcoin needs to be both. It needs to be a store of value and it needs to be a medium of exchange. Now, this dynamic is, has been almost impossible to achieve throughout history. Uh, gold has been a great store of value. Gold has never really been a great medium of exchange. And one of the reasons is because it's hard to build a good payment system with gold. Right. Uh, they, they, they tried one uh, with Bretton Woods and that failed as well. So because government has too much power and control. So the fiat system is an amazing medium of exchange, but it's a terrible store of value. Uh, and uh, I mean, in the US and uh, a few other countries, it's a decent store of value, but in the majority of the world, it's a disastrous store of value. So it's really hard to do both of them. And because it's hard to do both of them, they don't exactly both go up evenly. Right now we're watching, uh, we're in the middle of a 70% uh, value drop in the, in the price of Bitcoin because the speculation just got out of control. So a lot of people, I have debated Noriel Rubini uh, and he's big on this saying, how is Bitcoin a store of value? It just fell 70%. And it's hard to make the argument, yeah, but if you look back an extra year, it's still up 600%, right? So it's a matter of perspective, right? It, it, it matters on your time frame. So both of them come and go. And um, three years ago, Bitcoin was an amazing uh, medium of exchange because not a lot of people were using it. And then end of last year, Bitcoin got so popular 
And a lot of bad actors wanted to spam the Bitcoin blockchain, like sending you a thousand emails a day and, you know, crashing your email server. Uh, Bitcoin is no different than that. So a lot of bad actors took the opportunity that Bitcoin's popularity was already starting to stress its, um, uh, you know, medium of exchange technological layer. And it didn't take much effort to spam it a little bit more and make it very expensive and very slow. And they used, you know, that tactic to try and promote their scam coins. Uh, so when, when Bitcoin became such a great store of value, everyone started becoming rich. They wanted to use it. They wanted to spend their wealth and the medium of exchange technological layer wasn't ready to support uh, that kind of a mass adoption. And now we're back to, okay, well, the store of value property is kind of taking a hit, but right now Bitcoin is once again very fast and very cheap because the technological layer improved. So they're both improving, but they don't improve together because when one starts doing well, it's at a little bit at the expense of the other. Um, so they both do go up, but not at the same time. As far as the lightning goes, so Bitcoin has its fundamental properties. It's the same three properties um, I talked about in the beginning, unconfiscatability, censorship resistant value transfer, and uh, the gold type monetary policy. These three properties cannot be endangered. And the problem is because Bitcoin's code is insanely difficult to change, the littlest thing is very difficult to change because you don't want to endanger these three properties. If Bitcoin code base was easier to change, these three properties would always be at risk and Bitcoin would not have the confidence to be worth this kind of value. So you can't endanger these three properties. So unfortunately, because we can't endanger these three properties, we are stuck with five to seven transactions a second on the base layer of Bitcoin. So going into the future, because we only have five to seven transactions a second on the base layer, those transactions would need to get bigger and bigger and bigger and cost more and more money. So all of your little transactions now have to be done on an additional layer on top of Bitcoin, and then they settle to the original layer. So instead of you and I doing a transaction for $5 on the base layer, uh, you and I would be doing a transaction on a secondary layer. And then maybe at the end of the week, that transaction would settle to the base layer after we've done, you know, uh, several, you know, 20, 30, hundreds of transactions. And by you, I don't necessarily mean another person. I mean like a store, like a store, you know, uh, like a grocery store has 500 customers a day. There's no reason for them to put every single one of those transactions on the base layer. They can do them on a secondary layer. And then at the end of the day or at the end of the week, they move it all as one transaction. Um, and, the, and this secondary layer needs to be also built. Well, obviously, the secondary layer has absolutely no effect on the monetary property of Bitcoin. So that's unaffected. But the secondary layer needs to be built. Obviously, it already has scaling. But the secondary layer cannot be easily confiscatable because if the Bitcoin's being 
used on a secondary layer, if those Bitcoins are confiscatable, or if they have censorship in the middle of those uh, transactions, then no one would use the secondary layer. So building out that secondary layer requires the same like libertarian principles of making sure it's unconfiscatable and making sure it's censorship resistant. And this time around, there should be significantly better privacy because privacy on the base layer isn't great. Uh, you are pseudo-anonymous, and if the government wants to find you uh, using that base layer, right now they have the resources. It's not a blanket like, hey, we can just give Facebook a call and we have all your messages. Hey, we can just call your cell phone provider and we have all of your history, right? Um, this is more like, hey, we think this person, uh, we, we don't like this transaction, let's zoom in. They can put programmers on it and find you know, sure. specific people and specific transactions. So the secondary layer needs to be built with more privacy in mind to, to give people you know, uh, safety in uh, spending their money without worrying about you know, the government doesn't like what you spent your money on uh, kind of thing. And um, uh, so, so that's what I'm looking forward to. There may be more privacy features on the base layer as well, but it's a double-edged sword putting full privacy on the base layer because when you have too much privacy on the base layer, even the developers now struggle to find out, hey, what is happening under the hood? In addition, one day I hope to see some honest politician, if that's possible, you know, route tax revenue through the base layer for the reasons of it's not private. So there are multiple reasons uh, for you know, privacy-conscious people to not want privacy by default, like charity organizations and government revenue, there are lots of use cases where you don't want privacy in your financial transactions. And um, by putting too much privacy on the base layer, you are removing the good thing that could be done for civilization by not having that privacy. So how far away are we from a, a functional second layer or lightning network type vehicle? Um, best guess uh, for uh, probably about 12 months, probably by this time next year will be good. There are some really neat test cases going on. Uh, people are doing really interesting stuff uh, in beta testing. It's recommended not to put more than like a few hundred dollars onto one of these lightning nodes uh, to use in these transactions because they're both pull and push. And uh, But yeah, lots of people are playing around. Nothing catastrophic has happened yet. Uh, so it, I, the technology is moving fast. Um, it's kind of like progressing faster than you expect. But these developers are very cautious. They're very responsible. Even though things are happening faster than you expect, uh, they're going to take even extra time uh, testing it to make sure that because, uh, if, if, you know, the, the, the move fast and break things model in tech doesn't apply when you're trying, when, when you're dealing with potentially a trillion dollar uh, market cap yeah. currency. Like move fast and break things is the worst thing that you want. It, 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 slow and steady is a much better model here. So you, um, you're a Bitcoin guy, right? I mean, and, and so is there any other projects, any other blockchains uh, that you find interesting enough 
uh, to actually pay attention to? Not really. Um, to me, a blockchain is the invention of Satoshi Nakamoto. People have been trying to solve the double spend problem for a long time. So the basics of the double spend problem is prior to uh, the Genesis block of Bitcoin in, uh, in January of 2009, any digital data that you sent across the internet or you know, even from uh, your computer to somebody else's computer on a USB stick, any digital data you transfer, you're transferring a copy of that data. You're never actually losing that data. It's always an identical copy of a Word document, an identical copy of a text message. That's why you both have it. You know, an identical version of a song. That's how MP3s became popular with Napster and then BitTorrent, right? File sharing. So people were trying to solve the double spend problem. Like, how do you send digital data and lose possession of that data? How do you do that? And nobody could solve it until Satoshi came up with proof of work. These are the miners that are burning electricity, generating new Bitcoins. And in a censorship resistant way, peer to peer, you actually lose possession of your data. And whoever you send that data to gets that data. Now, that the data itself happens to be a very good use case for money happens to be a very good use case for value, but it's hard to apply this use case to anything else. Like a lot of people, oh, this is great. We can have identity. Well, then you can accidentally send your identity to someone else and you no longer have your identity, right? Real estate, well, no, unless you want to accidentally and permanently lose your real estate or send it to your neighbor and your neighbor now legally owns your real estate, that's not a use case for a blockchain. Like a blockchain is a true bearer asset where whoever owns it, uh, whoever holds it, owns it. And it's just really, when you start to break that down, it's really difficult to find any other use cases. Now, a lot of people will tell you it's a use case, but my podcast analyzes this and tries to explain why it's absolutely crazy and why it doesn't really work. Um, the government decides your identity uh, because that's what identity is, right? It's a, uh, your passport and things like that. Uh, the government decides if you own your real estate. You may not agree with it, but that's the reality of the situation. Uh, if you don't agree, don't pay your real estate taxes and watch what happens to your real estate. And um, so if something requires physical form, then that physical form is at risk of censorship. And that physical form is that risk of confiscation. And that removes the properties of the blockchain that Satoshi Nakamoto created. Um, so a lot of these cases break down. Uh, the other thing that's very popular today is smart contracts. And once again, you run into this dilemma, at least I do. Well, smart contracts are great. I love smart contracts. The soda machine, even though I don't drink soda, that's an awesome smart contract. I stick a dollar into the machine, it spits out the soda. That's a smart contract. I don't understand why that smart contract needs to be decentralized. Bitcoin is decentralized to prevent censorship and confiscatability, and also to keep 
the monetary policy because it was built with the concept of money. So if you don't, but these properties are just not needed um, in 99% of smart contracts. They don't need censorship resistance unless you're dealing in a contract that's actually illicit. Um, you don't need to burn electricity. People always say how inefficient Bitcoin mining is. And I say, well, it's inefficient to you, but the people that are mining it, they're doing it because the government isn't offering them an unconfiscatability, an unconfiscatable value transfer, censorship resistant value transfer, right? That's why they're burning this electricity to create that. Your smart contract doesn't need that. Bitcoin is probably the most inefficient database the world has ever seen. But because of its inefficiency, it gives it properties that no one else has. You just don't need this inefficiency in smart contracts because they're not at risk of censorship um, unless it's a contract that's very, very illicit. And that's not what most people need smart contracts for. And uh, it comes down to, fine, have your smart contracts, but you don't need decentralization. Decentralization is a very expensive, very inefficient, uh, very slow tool set, and it only is needed to prevent censorship. So tell, tell, uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast, a video podcast, and, and where we can, what is it called, where we can find it? <laughs> sure. So I've pretty much, um, I, I kind of work for myself. So everything is branded under my name. I started out with like a website and a catchy name for the website, but <laughs> um, I decided to just brand myself. So everything is under Tone Vase. It's ToneVase.com. Tonevase YouTube channel, Tonevase on Twitter, and other social media if I ever have time to uh, actually start promoting myself on other social media. But the YouTube channel is going well. It started out focusing on trading because that is my expertise. My expertise is trading and technical analysis and chart reading. Uh, but my YouTube channel is about more than that. Uh, like my expertise is trading and because I'm too busy evangelizing Bitcoin and explaining it to the world, uh, too busy to trade at the moment. It's not going anywhere. I'll start my hedge fund eventually and start trading again or not even bother managing other people's money and just manage my own money like I used to do. So my channel really focuses on educating people about Bitcoin, covering the daily news or weekly news, depends on my travel schedule. Uh, we cover the news. Everyone always asks me about my price predictions. I do uh, price analysis shows. Recently added a lawyer show, which is, I think, the most informative show. I get together on a stream with about three or four lawyers in the crypto space, and we talk about the latest law-related issues in the world of crypto. I occasionally interview people. I get interviewed pretty often. So my YouTube channel is pretty diverse with a lot of content. Um, because I'm not trading anymore, I decided to monetize by teaching a trading workshop where I educate people how to read charts and learn technical analysis. On average, I do about two of those a month all over the world as I travel. I just rent out a co-working space for a day, get about 20 to 25 people in a room, and uh, just we go seven hours straight of chart reading from the very basic to some pretty advanced topics. Um, and I enjoy doing that. I actually used to be a teacher before I joined Wall Street. Uh, so I do enjoy educating people and teaching people. And uh, that's another thing that I do as I travel. 
besides my YouTube channel and speaking at all of these conferences all around the world. Tone, this has been really, uh, really good. Um, thanks so much for being on the show today. No, thank you. Glad to be on. We'll be right back. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. And get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222 QRP book. One word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Okay, we're back with uh, Q&A time here. Buck Joffrey back uh, with Consensus Network. I'm sure you enjoyed that interview with Tone Vase. What you're going to find is there's guys like Tone who are gung-ho Bitcoin purists, and then you're going to find the opposite. You're going to find people who are, you know, I mean, I, you'll, there's an upcoming interview where you'll hear a guy basically saying that he thinks that Bitcoin will never really take off and that that the real value is all in, um, you know, blockchain-related technology, which for me personally, I think both are true. I used to be, uh, I used to think the latter, but now I'm becoming more and more of a true uh, Bitcoin fan. Uh, and we'll talk about that more in further episodes. But um, I want to get to your questions uh, first question comes from William Sue. Uh, William Sue is a Wealth Formula listener as well. And he uh, says, Buck, loving the podcast. I have two maybe somewhat related questions. Can you explain MetaMask, my Ether wallet? What is it? How to set it up? The difference between the two. In terms of setting things up, make sure you go to consensusnetwork.io. Check out the tutorials. You'll get most of what you'll need to at least get started in this area. Phil, Phil has done some decent uh uh, videos on that. Now let's start with my Ether wallet. And my Ether wallet is uh, basically where you can store all of your Ethereum based tokens on the Ethereum blockchain where you have control of your assets by having what's called a private key that only you control. Okay. Now um, your private key can be in the form of a file, which is actually what I first used when I when I first bought Ethereum and didn't know very much. Basically, when you go to my Ethereum wallet, you needed a password, and then you would have to download a file, literally download a file, which was your private key, in order to get access uh, to your wallet and be able to send and receive tokens. Okay. Um, now, obviously, the the advantage of that is that you control it. Uh, but also if you, you know, you lose your key, well, then you're kind of out of luck too. Right. Um, I used to use these again, I used to use the file mechanisms back then, you know, the file as the actual, um, uh, private key. And that was really stupid because if your house burnt down or you just lost copies of it or whatever, yeah, your money's gone. Right. So I'll get to the, the optimum way of doing it in a minute, but let me move on and, and talk a little bit about MetaMask because uh, MetaMask is basically a Google Chrome extension, okay? And it allows you to turn your Google Chrome uh, browser into uh, an Ethereum browser. So you can 
retrieve data for the, from the Ethereum blockchain so you can verify your identity, verify your transactions, etc. Um, you can add a number of wallets to your account. Um, and you can also use it to, you know, basically get into your Ethereum wallet. Now, uh, you, so it's a wallet and it can also allow you to get into my Ethereum wallet. Okay, get, getting confusing. But the good news is I'm going to give you, in my opinion, the best solution in a second. So hang in there if you're getting confused. MetaMask uh, also, though, is it allows you to visit uh, Ethereum-enabled websites. So Ethereum is a um, Ethereum is you know a protocol, and and so it's not like it's you know it's not like it's just currency. It's not. It's something that people build applications on, right? Build websites on. So um, by using MetaMask, you can actually visit these Ethereum-enabled websites or applications. Uh, basically, what MetaMask is, is it's a bridge between Chrome uh, and the Ethereum blockchain. That's really what it is. Uh, it's also nice if you want to use it because it's a you know it's a barrier to uh, to phishing sites you know these sites that try to lure you in pretending to be another site and then you end up sending money to the wrong site so it's nice for that it's an extra bonus i guess um here's the thing i really don't like metamask um i find it somewhat confusing to use um i also don't like that it is a it's a um, hot wallet. In other words, it is connected. If you store, if you have your money on it, it's connected to the internet, right? So it's it, that's why we call it a hot wallet. And I certainly uh, won't use it because of that. Also, you know, it's a it's a Chrome extension. It's a Google Chrome extension. These things are not that hard to hack. So I'm I'm not a big fan of MetaMask in terms of storing your uh, storing your 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 coins your your tokens or whatever. That's that's basically the story there. Now let me tell you how I um, do this. When I actually use I do use my Ether wallet. I do like using my Ether wallet. But I use um, what's called a hardware um, uh, a wallet. So I have something called a Ledger S, and hopefully Phil has something up on the tutorials about that. I'm pretty sure he does because he was asking me about it. But a Ledger S, is it looks like a thumb drive. And what it is is it just, it, it, think of it as holding all of your private keys. And so when I go to my Ether wallet, if I want to access my Ethereum or I want to access tokens built on the Ethereum blockchain, otherwise known as ERC-20 tokens. I just basically go to uh, my Ether wallet, then I plug in this hardware thing that sits, you know, normally sits offline, and that creates the private key and connects me to the Ethereum blockchain. I don't, it's so easy to use. It's the safest way to do it because it's basically cold storage. It's not it's not on the internet. And um, so that's how I do it. I, so I use, I use a Ledger S uh, pretty much for storage of, of pretty much all um, of my tokens. For Ethereum, I use, uh, for Ethereum, I connect to my Ether wallet. 
for Bitcoin and for a number of other coins, I will uh, go to um, the um, the actual I forget the name, but the uh, the the drive uh, of the ledger itself, which it's very easy to use once you basically you can purchase that um, and 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 use it pretty easily. But that's really the safest way. So um, again, just to reiterate, the best way to do it, uh, in my view, is not to store coins on MetaMask. I would I would get a ledger. Let that be your key, your private key for wherever you're storing your coins in the wallet. For example, my Ether wallet or you know, your Bitcoin wallet or whatever. Okay, so let me get to another one of your questions, uh, William. Uh, you say, can you explain how we can see our private keys on uh, on Coinbase? Well, in short, if you're using Coinbase, you don't really have a private key, right? Um, because what you're doing, Coinbase is an exchange and your coins or tokens are on the blockchain uh, but the private keys don't really belong to you. They belong to Coinbase and um, they belong to the exchange. And so even though there's all of this, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, that you bought on Coinbase, um, you don't have, they're, they're sitting all basically in the wallet of Coinbase. It's all kind of meshed up into one. I mean, so your assets get mixed up with everyone else on, on these blockchains. It, it's convenient and easy to use um, because, of course, now, you know, you don't have to have a private key, et cetera. You just log in a traditional way, but it's not as safe as having your own wallet. So, um, uh, again, if, you know, I don't know what the likelihood of Coinbase uh, getting hacked is, but if it were, I mean... You know your your money's basically sitting on an exchange. It's not sitting on a uh, on the blockchain protected by your own you know your own uh, private key. So I would again recommend using a hardware wallet. You know, transferring over your uh, tokens to a a, uh, a a wallet that's you know like my Ether wallet, um, you know, or a Bitcoin wallet, uh, some kind of Bitcoin wallet and then using a Ledger S as your private key. That's how I would uh, recommend it. Now, um, let's see here what else we got. We got uh, Justin, another uh, Wealth Formula guy. And it's an interesting question. So, and this, he writes, I have a question that goes in line with the early concept theme of this show. What is a hard fork and uh, when and why is it used? I understand the basic concept, but what exactly does it do to a blockchain? Why is this a technique that is sometimes used by different chains? And why does it seemingly generate so much controversy? Okay, so um, okay, so let me, I'm going to answer this to the best of my ability. But by all means, if I have some technical inaccuracies there, and there's somebody out there who's listening, who's a programmer, and uh, you want to correct me, let me know. Shoot me an email info at consensusnetwork.io. But basically, forks in programming language, in programming terms, is open source code modification. It's basically an upgrade to software, right? So hard forks are a change uh, to the protocol that makes the older versions of the software invalid. It's a big deal, right? It's a, for big changes. You know, for Bitcoin, it would be like changing the block sizes or something like that. Um, and in order for 
in order for that to occur, you have to get you know, the majority of miners to agree, more than the majority, the super majority of the miners to agree uh, on these changes, these big software changes. And Bitcoin, that's really difficult to do because there's a lot of Bitcoin purists. If you want to be called Bitcoin, the purists are going to say, hey, Bitcoin is Bitcoin. We're not going to change it because you don't like the way it's scaling, etc. This is just what it is. So, the problem with somebody trying to, you know, do a hard, do a hard fork uh, in in that milieu is that you've got to have. I mean, you've got to have like you know, eighty five percent, ninety five percent of these miners to agree. Um, and the reason for that is that I mean, these things again, they are a big deal to the ecosystem. You can't have two, you know, you can't have two completely different. Protocols calling themselves Bitcoin, it, it, that, it, that creates a big problem. Um, so typically, uh, if it's that big of a deal, uh, uh, like literally changing the software and uh, for the purpose of calling, uh, for the name of, it's still going to be called Bitcoin, but you're going to completely change the software, then everybody's got to agree on it. If they don't and they split and somebody still tries to call themselves Bitcoin, uh, and there, basically what would happen is the majority would do what's called a 51% attack and they would destroy, you know, the minority, the minority protocol. That's basically it would work. But, um, there's other situations in which, you know, there is forks that are not quite as contentious because they are not really intending um, to, to, to have the same identity and Bitcoin and cash was the best example of that. Um, and you know, basically what they did is they, they just literally split from Bitcoin. They started their own, um, they started their, uh, their own, um, permutation of Bitcoin. Uh, they weren't asking to, you know, be Bitcoin anymore. They were going to be Bitcoin cash. And, um, so everyone who owned Bitcoin before the fork uh, ended up getting identical amount of Bitcoin cash um, uh, because, you know, because they it basically split off, right? Um, they stopped adding to the Bitcoin side itself. It became the Bitcoin cash or it became the Bitcoin cash fork. Um, anyway, that's uh, in a nutshell kind of what the way I understand uh, uh, forks, hard forks, etc. Um the bottom line is that it is very difficult to get uh, a decentralized group of miners and programmers to really uh, agree on, you know, agree on major software updates. Ethereum has had more luck with that. Um, and mostly I think it's because Vitalik Buterin sort of runs a show there. He was the uh, guy who created Ethereum, and usually it seems like his ideas uh, turn out, or what he wants to do ends up going, and they've, they've done a, f a few different updates there. Got another one from Dr. Fung. Um, and this is a fairly basic, but I think a good question to get into. We alluded to it earlier. He says, uh, Hi, Buck, thanks for starting the show on crypto. It's a good, safe place. A basic question. I see two coins mentioned more than others. One is called Bitcoin, the other one Ethereum. What is the difference between them and why 
would I choose one over the other? Well, um, you know, this is a good place to ask because it is, uh, you know, I want starter, you know, beginners and people of, uh, people who are more involved with this as well. And some people have been buying the stuff and still don't really know the difference. Uh, Basically, Bitcoin and block or Bitcoin and Ethereum are two different blockchains altogether. They're two different protocols altogether. And Bitcoin was the initial blockchain um, that was, uh, you know, the the Satoshi Nakamoto paper, the initial thing that really the whole idea behind Bitcoin was really for the purpose of being a currency or storage of value. And it has a very, very narrow application in that regard, right? And um, Bitcoin isn't trying to be, uh, well, this is more complicated than this, but let's just say for now, for the most part, Bitcoin is not trying to be anything but a currency. And so um, the way to think about it is a highly secure, highly specialized tool for the purpose of uh, uh, exchange of value. Now, that's really important because the, the, the limited utility of Bitcoin in that sense also makes it highly secure. If you think about like uh, exposure surface, right? Like if the, where, where your activity is actually going to occur and where it can be attacked, Bitcoin has a very, very narrow exposure surface. And so that makes it uniquely, um, uniquely valuable uh, for uh, the exchange of value uh, and, and, and storage of value. Uh, Ethereum is different, and it's very different. And this is where, like, it's amazing. You, you know, you talk to people who are literally doing, you know, courses in blockchain or whatever, and, and they, they don't know the difference here. Ethereum, although has a, a price uh, afforded to it, I mean, it's worth something. It goes up and down in value. But what is Ethereum? Ethereum was not meant to be a currency. Ethereum was meant to be a protocol. Ethereum was meant to to be a platform, right? Uh, it's for all those other things that we talked about in the introductory shows where you can design smart contracts, you can uh, you can build applications on it. So it's not like a website, but something a website would actually be built on, right? Hopefully that makes sense. So it's not, again, the purpose of, of Ethereum is not to be a currency, even though it has a value. It is a protocol that is used to build on top of. And that is critically important to understand that. There's, there's others like that as well. There's other blockchains. There are other distributed ledgers. Uh, one of my one of my more uh, interesting projects that I'm interested in um, is called EOS. EOS uh, EOS is another blockchain. EOS is another uh, something that's just you know it's it's similar in concept to Ethereum, but a lot of people would tell you that EOS is a lot more scalable. Um, another another protocol. Um, that I'm excited about and you're going to hear about soon is is Hashgraph or Hedera Hashgraph. It just doesn't use a blockchain. It uses, some, it uses a different kind of distributed ledger based on something called a gossip protocol. But once again, the purpose of Hedera 
uh, of Hashgraph is not the same purpose of Bitcoin. It is a protocol. It's something that software developers are going to use to build on top of to create decentralized applications to build to rebuild the internet, to rebuild businesses, etc. So hopefully that's clear. And but I, you know, it's a very good question, and I think it's something that, um, again, it seems like even the uh, so-called experts, because I'm finding a lot of people call themselves experts uh, in in um, uh, distributed ledger technology, but they don't seem to know some of these basic things. Uh, by the way, I don't. I don't call myself an expert. I call myself a guy who's very interested and relatively uh, able to absorb new information that's learning with you, who knows more than most uh, most people out there right now. But again, that's not very difficult because most people don't know very much about, uh, about cryptocurrencies in general. Um, by the way, um, one last thing I'll say is if you hear, one other thing that I'll tell you is that when you hear people talk about uh, blockchain's great. I just don't like cryptocurrency. It's almost nonsensical because the whole idea behind what makes this this technology work is the idea of decentralization. And you can't have decentralization without cryptocurrency. So if you hear somebody say that, if you hear them say, you know, I really like blockchain, I just don't like cryptocurrency, then they don't really know what they're talking about. I can guarantee you that. Anyway, uh, hopefully that was a useful uh, Q&A session. Um, and again, if I'm inaccurate anyways, you have better ways of describing things or whatnot, uh, feel free to send me an email at info at consensusnetwork.io. In the meantime, I would also urge you to send your questions there or, like I said before, preferably you ask questions and we can air them. It'll be more exciting to hear your voice on the air, but it seems like most of you are shy, which is fine, but it will be fun if some, if people would like to uh, voice their questions instead of write them. And if you have any other comments on anything I've said, I would love to hear it. We're all learning together here. Uh, I, I think, uh, like I said, um, this is a process that takes a while. Uh, to you know, learn all this terminology. It's a new language, but the more you learn it, the more you're going to love it. And uh, that's it for me uh, this week on Consensus Network. Um, if you like the show, make sure to you know go to the website um, consensusnetwork.io and go out there and and uh, you know there's an easy way to give us a five star review. We need lots of those early on so we can get on the map and keep attracting really good talent, just like we did with Wealth Formula Podcast. Um, and, uh, that's it for me. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.